Hello and welcome to the Controller Talk podcast presented by Danfoss North America. Our goal is to provide you with information about using Danfoss controls in the supermarket and warehouse industry, specifically in the U.S. and Canada. We're doing these twice a month for now. You can catch these podcasts on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts, and it's also available through the Danfoss Ref Tools app. For the video version, check us out on the Danfoss North America YouTube page. Search for Controller Talk to see our video collection. I'm Dave Yoder, along with Chris Brown. Well, Chris, we're back talking about the CC550A. And for the kids who are looking for extra credit, here comes the 102 course. (laughs) All right. So I had a request from a field guy to talk about this specifically. And we're going to discuss how we use files in the front-end controllers like the 255, 355, 800, and 800A to make the interface work between the case controller and the front-end controller. We'll also talk about what to do when you realize that the files you need are not in the front-end controller. So the basic premise here is that starting with the 255, there is a file structure in the main controller for each case controller that you can interface with. There is a device file in the main controller that contains a list of all the things that you can connect to in the main controller. This could be a case controller, a Munters, or a Linux RTU, or other controllers like the EKC326A, CO2 high-pressure valve controller, or other superheat controllers. So these device files, they know the name, the part number, and the software version for each controller, that can be connected to the main controller. The main controller considers each one of these generic controllers, and you'll see that term used in our main controller. We'll see that if the software version within a case controller changes due to additional features or parameters being added, there's typically a new file released for the controller, and at that point, the device file gets updated. That's right. So for the file for each controller, it normally contains the menus and the the wording for the controller itself. Uh, The individual controller files, they're going to either have an EDF or an ED3 extension at the end of the file name, um, which we normally would call an extended definition file. And it just breaks down to which system manager that the file is being used with, which one of those two versions you're looking at. So 255, uh, it's going to be the EDF file version. And so again, make sure if you're in a situation where you've got to load these files into the system manager, you're choosing the right type based on your model. So 255, again, you want to make sure it's the EDF file. And then if we're talking 355, 800s, then that's more than you, when you want to look at the ED3 files instead on the extension at the end of the name. Yep. Um, so that's the file specific to the device itself. And then you also have, like you said, the, the second file that kind of dictates what options you have in the dropdown lists, which is our device, li- what we call a device list. Um, so on the 255, it's going to be device.lst. So LST is the extension at the end of the file name. And then just like with the, the previous one, when we look at the 355 and the 800, it's device.ls3 instead of LST. Um, so again, just pay a little bit of attention there and make sure you're grabbing the right file type. If there's any confusion or questions on that, obviously reach out to Dave and I, and we can get you straightened out there. Um, but those are your, your two file types that we're, um, concerned about when we're trying to get a case controller online. 
so the basic steps, we, we touched on it in the last episode, but there's three big things with the 550 uh, that we have to worry about. So at the, the controller level, the case controller level, we need to make sure we've got the address in there and we know what that unique address is. Our refrigerant type, um, we're worried about. And then the application type, which is what our relay functions are on the case controller. Um, so those are the basic things you're gonna throw into that case controller up front. Uh, and then after that, that's when we wanna rescan it to bring it online. We talked a little bit again in the last episode about your different types as far as Echelon or Modbus communication. Um, when you're on the rescan screens in your system managers, just make sure you're paying attention to what channels are enabled and make sure you have the right choices selected. So. If we're using Modbus on the case controllers, then obviously on the rescan screens, we need to make sure channel Modbus is marked off. Uh, checking the, the details in the IO network or status screen. So after the scan's done, then you can go in and, and see the feedback as far as what it picks up for the application type, the part number, the firmware version. So on a 255, um, if you're under your communications section of the program, you can go into overview and generics to see that that information. And then if we're in 355s, 800s, 800As, then there's a scan status tab you want to go to um, under your network nodes, and that's going to give you that same feedback there. Uh, if you go into circuit configuration then, where you're kind of worried about actually setting up the case controller, um, if we're in a 255, then there is a drop-down, or you want to choose your, your type, rather, for generic, and then you get to a second point where you're going to choose your type as far as the specific case controller model. Um, another part of that with the 255 also is you have to say whether you have a single app or a multi app case controller, and that also is going to limit which options you see on the, the following screen afterwards. When you're in the 355s and 800s, it just kind of throws it all out there to you, and good luck finding it. you got to make sure you're, you're filtering through that list the right way. Um, they do give you an option at the top of the screen to try to narrow it down if it's online already. Yep. But otherwise, um, in the 800s and 800As, you just get that drop-down list with everything for a case controller type, regardless of whether it's single or multi-evap. As far as the multi-evaps go, I mean, up until the, the new ones came out that maybe we'll do a future podcast on the CC55, not to get that one confused with the 550, but prior to that, the only multi-evap controller we really had were that was a 303-750. They're kind of one in the same. The 303 just predated the 750 model number a little bit. Um, so that's really the only multi-evap controller you should run into out there. And then as far as the setup in the system manager with the evaporators, you can do up to 15 single evap case controllers on one circuit. So if we're looking at the setup and it asks you how many controllers do you have on this circuit, you can max out at 15 there. Not to say you couldn't set it up if you were beyond that, but I also don't know if we've ever run into more than that in one circuit. So True, uh, yeah. Not something to be too concerned about there. And then, uh, again, there's a drop-down list that, that's based on the device file and the controller. So we talked about part number, um, what application setting it is, which uh, you'll have to keep in mind there. If you're in the case controller itself, your options for the application are 1 through 10. Um, but then you might see some references in a letter format, A, B, C, D, and so on in the system manager. So A just equates to 1, B to 2, and so on. 
Um, but yeah, application number and then software versions, the last piece of the puzzle when you're going down through these lists, lists and sifting for what you want to select for your type. Yeah. Uh, after you made that selection, then you can go into the config area um, on the 255 or the addresses tab if it's the 800, and you can throw the controllers, case controllers address in there so we know how to marry up the circuit with which case controller is going to physically be wired up to it. Um, and then uh, it's it's not an end-all be-all, so if by chance somebody chooses the wrong type or maybe we had to replace the case controller and now we're at a higher firmware version than we were before, which makes the old selection the wrong one. Um, what you're going to see on the status screens of the, the setup or even if you're in the config screens where you're choosing your type, you're going to see either mismatch or, or on a status screen, you might say something input like input denied because it can't read back that information because the file is not valid anymore. So you, those are the sorts of things you're looking for to say, hey, maybe the type I selected was wrong. I need to go back and review that again. All right. Okay, so assuming that everything is right, as soon as you enter the address, the uh, controller will ask you if you want to upload the controller settings into the front-end controller. If the best settings are in the case controller, answer yes, and it'll bring those settings in. If the best settings are in the front-end controller, then you would answer no, so that you can download the settings from the front-end controller down to the case controller. If you made it this far, the last things to do are generally to go into the alarm screen, which kind of acts like a filter to block alarms from the case controller that you really don't want to see, because there's lots of options in there, and most people don't want to see everything. Um, so you can filter out the alarms that really matter to you. And then um, the other thing is to add some case controller points to history, like discharge air temp, uh, the defrost relay status, superheat readings, or anything else that you're interested in logging. So there are going to be times when the controller and or the version that you want is not in the list of generics. So next we're going to talk about each type of controller and how to get those files added to the controller so that you can bring your case online. So for that, we'll start with the 255. We'll go oldest to newest, I guess. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, but with the 255, so we've got a web page, which is something you'll see for the other versions as well. But you can go to a 255-specific web page to download the latest interim files. So it's downloaded as a zip file. And then you'll have to open that zip file up and extract the files inside of it. And so inside of it's a bunch of individual files that, that are for each type that are available. Um, there. Uh, so it lists them all out and then which controllers and versions are in the lists and then it also gives you file names so that you know which files you need for your, your new controller type that you have there. Um, at a minimum you'll, ha you'll have to update the device.lst file and then the file for the new controller you're adding. So again the going back to a EDF, or a, a EDF file for the device type and then a device.lst for the, um, the list of options you have in the dropdowns. Once you've, you've recognized which files you need, uh, next you'll, you'll need to go to get them into the controller and then reset the controller so that they're available there. Um, so as far as loading them into the controller, if you're looking at the AKA 65 software, uh, there's an option there under the file menu. So you'll have file up at the top left and you'll see underneath of that, that there's something for load files. 
Uh, that's where you'd want to go to get files from your PC and be able to load them into the 255 itself. It's not something you can just stick the file on a USB and then connect that USB into the controller. The 255 will not recognize those files that way. Um, so I think something that, that you and I have experienced quite a bit is even though you can do this remotely, um, connections can be a little slow. Things can time out. That it, It's not always that successful to try to load them in remotely. Right. Yep. So a lot of times we kind of default to, to recommending people do this on site, direct connected into the 255. It seems to be a lot more reliable that way. Um, so that, that's kind of our suggestion is if you're loading these files into a 255, do it on site, and then you're going to have a better chance of them getting in there the first time. And then after those files are loaded in, just again, just keep in mind that you probably want to reset the controller afterward for them to take effect. Yep. And we'll see that um, if you're going to load files in, especially if the software in the controller hasn't been updated for several years, you might have to upgrade the controller first to get it up to like a minimum version, so to speak, and then you can load these files in. Yep, that's very true. So for the 355 controller, the files from the 355 web page need to be loaded with the RMT software tool, and you'll want to be direct connected to the controller through the Ethernet port. Now, RMT has an option called File Management that allows files to be transferred to the controller. Once again, you have to reset the controller after the files are loaded. And for the 800 series controller, things got easier because you have two options now for loading those files. You can load the files with a USB thumb drive where each file must be loaded individually and then the controller is going to do a reset on its own after each file is transferred in. You can also load the files with RMT and I've done this remotely, had no issues doing it that way. Yep. And not to get too deep in the weeds on, on the RMT side, but just for individual users out there that um, whether it's their own network, that maybe their PC security or a customer's network that's blocking it, that you can run into situations there that we've seen where the ports are blocked and people just can't get the files in. They don't see the folders or options they need to do it. So just something to, to keep in the back of your mind there with the RMT side is there could be some restrictions or, or issues with um, ports being blocked to allow RMT to do what we're expecting it to be able to do there. Right. And if it's uh, if you're using RMT for the first time, you might have to go into your computer and make sure the firewall isn't uh, blocking it. Yep, for sure. Yep. So, and then we, last but not least, uh, the, the 800A series system manager that you know, hasn't been out too, too long here. Um, so it's less likely that we're gonna run into a situation where that's missing files. That's been released after a lot of these case controllers are already on the market. So it already knows that it needs to have the options in there for them. Um, and then also in addition to that, that the software upgrades on the 800As normally include all the latest case controller files with them as well. So the, that version, it's going to use an encrypted set of files to add the new devices in. Um, it's called an EPK file. And you can almost think of it a little bit like a zip file maybe if you wanted to. It, it's a file that loads in a package of generic files as opposed to individuals. Um, and it's something you can either do over a network if you can connect to that controller via a PC. Um, or if you have to, for some reason, it's also something, just put the file on a USB stick and then you can do it right there at the controller itself. Okay. Yep. 
So like many things, this can be confusing if you're not used to doing it or if you have to try it for the first time. But if you're in doubt on which files you need or how to get them into the controller, you can call us at 888-DANFOSS and then use options 1, 2, 1, and 1 again. Or you can email us at cooling.ts.fr.na at danfoss.com and we'll lend a hand with that. All right, Chris, so that takes us up to the Stump Chris portion of the show, which I know you're looking forward to. I'm ready to let you down. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. You were uh, 100% on the last one, so <laughs> let's see what goes on here. I think this is going to be another softball for you. So, All right. Here we go. So which 550A parameters might prevent frost buildup on the coil for a medium temp case? Might prevent frost buildup on the coil. Yes. So, well, we've got our melt function, right? You're on the right track. Okay. That's what we're going with. Yep. Is this multiple answers? That's right. The melt function tends to confuse people. Their first question is, how do I get rid of it? And then once in a while, the second question is, what does it do? Yeah. So you're going to answer that for them. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the melt function is in there to not replace defrosting, but to maybe give it a little pick-me-up, I guess you could say. So if yep. we're... If we're uh, in maybe a humid area in the building and things like that, maybe we want to um, do some things, like you said, to try to clear that coil off more than just the one, two, three, four, five, six defrosts a day or whatever it is that we're dealing with. So these the smell function, you pick a period and you pick a length. And so just say, for example, I think the default's once an hour for five minutes. Right. We're not energizing heaters or anything else. We're just shutting that valve off for a few minutes to try to help a little bit with some of that potential ice buildup and, and make sure that when we do get to a defrost that it's going to be able to completely clear the coil. Yep. Um, there you go. So yeah, that that's for all the guys out there that want to know what that malfunction is. Like you said, it's something we get questions on. That's what the intention is. It's true. There you go. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So moving on to listener mail, you know, um, I found that, this podcast was designed to stay within North America, but it's drifted. It's, it's all over the place. And um, we found that uh, people have listened to it in a lot of other countries, including like Nigeria and Malaysia and things like that. But I recently received a very nice email from a guy named Vaklov over uh, in the Czech Republic. And he works for Carrier, and he said he's enjoying the podcast. So that's go. that's... One or two, okay. Autographs, we'll send him some autographs. That's right. And uh, so, yeah, he's enjoying the podcast, and he said, hey, uh, I think you should talk about the CC55 case controller. And I said, hey, I think that's a great idea. Well, Vaklov, we're going to do just that in the near future. So thanks for your suggestion. There you go. Yeah. That I mean, it's nice. Just the 550 is a little bit of a building block towards talking about the 55. So It's true. Good to get this out there and then move on to that. It's the next evolution. Yep. So if you'd like to drop us an email with a suggestion for topics to cover, like Vakalov did, or a question or comment, you can email us at ControllerTalkNorthAmerica at DanFoss.com. Thanks for listening. Our studio and video engineers are Michael, don't call me Mike, Beckerman, and Jordan the Man Larson. Our audio engineer is that international man of mystery himself, Raul Garcia. And our Romanian rotational global intern who gets no credit for her work is Maria. Until next time, for Chris Brown, I'm Dave Yoder. Stay cool.